Well, it is a real delight to be here with you and thank you for the invitation uh, to be with you. I love the gift of retreat, um, even when I'm leading one, <laughs> slightly more when I'm a participant, but I, I love the gift of retreat. Um, part of what I love about it is this sense of God being here ahead of us, with us and within us. In that sense that we don't have to make anything happen, we don't have to manufacture anything, but simply be here and open and available. Our stance is one of expectancy without fixed expectation. What will happen for and within each of us, we don't know yet. But something will. And I love the fact that in this time we can be alone together. Each of us is responding to God's call on our lives. But we're alongside each other. Each of us responding in our own way to the same call. And there's, when we're present to that, that's, that's quite a profound thing. We, it's that concept, namaste, the, the light in me honours the light in you. And as we get underway, I also want to kind of bring out um, that coming on retreat is never simply a private matter. Each one of us is connected to and having an impact on the whole. Our families, our neighbourhoods, workplaces, communities, churches. And the more faithfully we hear and respond to the call on our lives, the more faithfully and helpfully we play our part for others. So we come away on retreat for others as much as for ourselves. And this connection between the personal and the public, between the inner and outer dimensions of our lives, will be a particular focus of this retreat, which I've called, I, I, I gave it the, the main title, For Love of the World. Um, and then the subtitle, Contemplation, Faith and the Active Life. Well, we're coming together at what seems like a momentous time in the life of the world. <laughs> you know, don't mean anything in particular by that. But, um, and I, I know there are dangers claiming that we live in uniquely critical times because the crises of every age loom large for those who are living through them. Uh, nevertheless, I think it is true to say that we face enormous challenges as an Earth community, and that, and that in many of the places we may have looked for leadership to help us face these challenges with courage and truthfulness, that leadership is sadly lacking. And I'm not speaking here only of political leadership, although obviously that's part of it. 
But I'm also speaking of the systems and institutions in which many of us live and work or are affected by. I'm not very familiar with the situation here in New Zealand, but in Australia, for example, I know of many people struggling to act with integrity and for the healing of the world in contexts that they experience as either compromised or compromising. I have friends who are public servants, I live in Canberra, the public service town, being directed by managers not to raise inconvenient truths in briefing papers. And I know scientists whose research has been defunded according to political ideology. I'm aware of how cultures of frenetic busyness and performance measurement in our schools and aged care facilities, hospitals and churches so often seem to take energy away from what is more important and life-giving and the, the kind of the heart of the vocation of those things. Social media and advertising colonise and distort the perspective of many. While families struggle to stay healthy and sane amidst what seems like chronic overscheduling and isolation. And maybe I'm seeing some nods, so I'm, I'm guessing that some of this is familiar in your experience too. I know, of course, this isn't the whole truth. There are vibrant and healthy workplaces and families and people finding generous and creative ways to contribute to the well-being of the whole. But I, I, I wanted to raise and kind of bring to the surface some of the more difficult, more negative aspects of our contemporary situation because I, I think it is necessary for us to be mindful of these as we explore in this retreat questions of contemplation, faith and the active life. Because these aren't abstract questions now. They are matters of urgency. We're all engaged in active lives, in work, in caring, in creativity. And we're all called to participate in the healing and flourishing of our world. We are here for love of the world. So the question we're wanting to explore over this time is how does our practice of meditation relate to and transform the possibilities of our action in this world? And what contribution to our fractured, frenetic and so often deluded world <laughs> is called forth from contemplative communities of faith, such as this one. So as I said, these are questions that I'm hoping that we can explore together over these days. And tonight I wanted to introduce our theme by reflecting on some remarks about the relationship between contemplation and action made by the former Archbishop of Canterbury, Rowan Williams. This comes from a talk which um, Archbishop Rowan gave at that time to the Synod of Bishops in Rome at the, at the invitation of, of 
Pope Benedict. And he wrote, or he said, contemplation is very far from being just one kind of thing that Christians do. It is the key to prayer, liturgy, art and ethics. The key to the essence of a renewed humanity that is capable of seeing the world and other subjects in the world with freedom. Freedom from self-oriented, acquisitive habits and the distorted understanding that comes from them. Well, some of you might be familiar with this quote. Um, we've, you know, the world community liked this quote and <laughs> put it on the website. Um, but it, it is a claim about the indispensability of contemplation for living well. And in fact, Williams goes on to say that, to put it boldly, contemplation is the only ultimate answer to the unreal and insane world that our financial systems and our advertising culture and our chaotic and unexamined emotions encourage us to inhabit. <laughs> to learn contemplative practice, he says, is to learn what we need so as to live truthfully and honestly and lovingly. It is a deeply revolutionary matter. Now, at one level, I'm conscious that this could sound a bit like some kind of ecclesiastical one-upmanship. It's like, aha, this proves it. We're the real deal. Um, you know, we're where it's really at. Contemplative rule. But that doesn't seem quite the right attitude, and I don't think it's what Williams is getting at. So I wanted just to um, spend a little time looking more closely at, at this and unpacking those remarks of Williams a bit. You might notice, first of all, that, that Rowan Williams begins from the confronting basic assumption that much of what we take to be reality is illusion, and much of what we take to be action is reaction. We think we're free, that we see other people and the world as they truly are and respond appropriately. But really, often, that's just not so. The Franciscan Richard Rohr, many of you will know, he offers, I think, one of, the most, one of the best and most accessible brief summaries of how it is that we are immersed in illusion and constrained by reactive engagement with others. In a talk he gave called Emotional Sobriety, Richard Raw spells out three ways by which he suggests most of us attempt to negotiate life. He calls these our three basic programs for happiness. And these are programs to which we're deeply attached, even addicted. So see, see if you can locate yourself <laughs> in what follows. So the first of these programs for happiness, he says, is the survival and security program. Those attached to this approach like to secure their lives against scarcity and risk. 
They might focus on accumulating wealth or plenty of supplies, superannuation and property. They worry about being caught out, caught short and not having enough. Security addicts need just that little bit more to feel safe and happy, or so they think. And second, there's the control program, whose adherents are sometimes described as control freaks. They're the ones attached, addicted to being in control, perhaps through knowledge, wanting to know everything or have it, having everything figured out, perhaps through power, enforcing the rules or dominating people. And finally, thirdly, there's the approval program. And this way of negotiating the world involves, revolves around seeking attention and affirmation, being praised and appreciated. Approval addicts will do almost anything so long as you keep liking them, admiring them and telling them they're all right. Approval addicts work very hard to make sure you'll never disapprove, and if you do, they're devastated. Well, the truth is, probably all of us can recognise all of these programs at work in our lives to one degree or another. And we can describe them using William's words as self-oriented, acquisitive habits of being. Acquisitive because they are the things, security or control or approval, that I think I need to acquire to live. And self-oriented because it's all about me. If I'm focused on acquiring your approval to feel okay about myself, for example, then I don't really see you as you are in all your messy complexity and independent of me. Instead, I tend to see you as little more than a possible purveyor of approval for me. And if you don't give it appropriately, well, what is wrong with you? <laughs> don't you know how much I've done for you? What is your problem? Or if what I must have is control, I've planned it all out, I've thought it through, this is how this event, isn't it, Linda? This is how this event, this is how this community, in fact, this is how my life is going to go. And if it doesn't work out, then I'm angry. I'm devastated. What do you mean I've got cancer? What do you mean you're leaving me? So when I see the world through self-oriented, acquisitive eyes, seeking to prop up my vulnerable sense of self and seeking desperately to be liked and safe and successful, which we all do, <laughs> then, as William says, my understanding and my responses are always distorted. I see neither myself nor others clearly.
I am captive to fear. Most of what I take to be reality is illusion. Most of what I think is action is reaction. And this applies to communities, nations and churches as much as to individuals. And we're seeing that, aren't we? Contemplative practice is, in the first instance, about sobering up. In Richard Raw's words, it's about sobriety, detoxification, stopping being addicted to these forms. It's about letting go the things I think I need to secure myself in the world and learning to rest into a deeper ground. Learning to receive my life as gift rather than trying incessantly to acquire or possess it. Now, times of meditation, the daily discipline of letting go our thoughts, complaints, and worries, and neuroses, our plans and expectations, letting go all of this, this is a practice which gradually helps us learn detachment from these habits of being, from these versions of reality. They kind of rel it's not that they go away, but they're kind of relativised. We can start to see them a little bit more for what they are and how they operate in us. And over time, that means we become more able to perceive others as they are, independent of, of what I think I need from them. Distinct from my opinion or my expectations or my demands. And we're more responsive then to the independent life of the world. It's otherness, it's beauty and mystery and pain. We're less driven by the compulsion to assert or protect ourselves. And Williams writes, only as this begins to happen will I be delivered from treating the gifts of God as yet another set of things I may acquire to make me happy or to dominate other people. And as this process unfolds, I become more free to love human beings in a human way, to love them not for what they may promise, to love them not as if they were there to provide me with lasting safety and comfort, but as fragile fellow creatures held in the love of God. That a beautiful phrase. See one another as fragile fellow creatures held in the love of God. I discover how to see other persons and things for what they are in relation to God, not to me. And it is here that true justice, as well as true love, has its roots. 
Well, there could hardly be, I think, a better statement of the significance of contemplative practice for the active life, and particularly for active lives in a world facing the challenges we face. And so our retreat begins. It's an opportunity to deepen our contemplative practice and to commit ourselves anew to this journey of simplicity and truthfulness and openness to the Spirit of God. It's an offering of ourselves that we might become more capable of action that truly does respect and celebrate and renew the world. You're all here because you're responding to a call, a nudge, a need, a ripening. It isn't an accident even if you think you're just here for a rest. <laughs> the most important thing you can do over this time is to seek to be as open as you can be to what the Spirit is doing. To let yourself be led and be opened. As I said at the beginning, retreat is not an escape from yourself or from the needs of the world, but a yes to being available to what God is doing in and through you. And so as we kind of conclude this introductory um, session, I want to say a word about a couple of things. And the first is about our use of, of time. The most important thing that you is that you do what you need to do over this time, whether that's rest or go for a walk or journal or paint or pray or whatever. <laughs> um, nothing is compulsory. There is a program, as you see, but if you don't want to come to morning prayer or to meditation or to a talk or to a meal, then don't. This time is a gift you've given yourself and you've been led to receive. So let yourself receive it and listen to the promptings of the Spirit in your heart and feel free to be responsive to that. I wanted also just to say a word about, about my talks. They have a bit in them, some of them. Um, they may be a little dense <laughs> in places. And, and sometimes you might feel that you're not kind of following everything or that something's caught your attention and you're back there and then you've missed, you know, you've missed something that's come. Partly I want to encourage you not to feel you have to get everything. Trust you'll hear what you need. 
even if it is, it might be a phrase, it might be a word. Trust the spirit at work in your listening. And so allow yourself to receive the talks with a contemplative, non-anxious, non-grasping attention. I will leave a copy of the talk on the piano, which by now is bristling with paperwork. Um, uh, so I'll, I'll leave a copy there if you know if you would if there's something you'd like to check on or have a look at. But again, please don't feel I'm saying right. I expect you to do your homework. It's not that. It's just if, if something you'd like to have a look at, please feel free to do that. Um, but yeah, no exam, so <laughs> don't panic. And then just finally, just to reiterate again a little bit, um, building on what Peter said about, about the silence of this time, um, one of the most helpful things I think that I um, realised or probably somebody said it to me uh, at the beginning of a silent retreat is that the silence is a gift you give yourself and that you give others. Um, I think sometimes our discomfort with silence, if I mean, I know many of you perhaps have, have done many silent retreats, but for those for whom it's a, a bit of a new thing and might feel a little strange, and particularly at meal times, it can feel a little awkward at first. And part of the sense can be, I've, I'm worried I'm being rude by not acknowledging the other person or by not somehow, you know, making a connection. But we can also turn that around and to say that, that over this time we're actually giving each other the gift of undistracted spaciousness and, and so that this, this kind of custody of the eyes and this kind of allowing the spaciousness and the silence of others is the gift that we give each other over this time. So we don't need to feel anxious about the fact that it's socially not our usual way of being together. Um, and as we sink more deeply into it over the time, you'll, you'll discover, you, you know, you'll discover that you you are sinking more deeply, and that it becomes a much more natural way of being. <coughs> so we we're going to move into um, night prayer and our time uh, of meditation, and and after that. We are in silence. Um, the silence uh, begins as we return to our rooms. Let me just um, end with by rereading re that um, quotation from Williams. Contemplation is very far from being just one kind of thing that Christians do. It is the key to prayer, liturgy, art and ethics the key to the essence of a renewed humanity that is capable of seeing the world and other subjects in the world with freedom. Freedom from self-oriented, acquisitive habits and the distorted understanding that comes from them. <laughs>